It's Thursday, the 7th of September. In this episode of Going Viral, Associate Professor Paul Griffin discusses global and Australian statistics, vaccination status, new vaccines and antivirals. Paul will give you predictions of COVID-19 moving forward. The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest on COVID-19, with leading voices from across Australia providing medical professionals with up-to-date information from reliable sources. Here's today's episode. Thank you for the introduction and invitation to speak. There is still a lot that I think people need to know, and I'll try and cover that. It is a lot of content, so I've got quite a few slides, but I understand they're in your book there, so you can refer to those. I I did have to update them because there were quite a few updates. I do have some disclosures in that I've done uh, now eight clinical trials for COVID vaccines. I'm involved in trialling a number of different therapies. I do some medical advisory board work and some different talks, but the content today is all my own. And this is what I'm going to try and cover uh, in 25 minutes. So where we're up to, what's happening with the virus, a bit on vaccines, a bit on therapies, and then we'll try and wrap it up just in time. So some basic statistics and epidemiology, and if you start with a cartoon on the right, it now puts COVID as the seventh biggest pandemic of all time in terms of death toll. And um, we know it was discovered in uh, China in December 19, pandemic declared 11th of March 2020. The public health emergency of international concern was deemed over on the 5th of May, but I think the context there was really lost in the commentary in that it was supposed to indicate that it was ongoing and established, not that it was done. But unfortunately, that's what a lot of people took away from that change. Worldwide, nearly 800 million cases, nearly 7 million deaths in our country. We've fared relatively well, and I'll touch on that, but still over 11 million cases and over 22,000 deaths. Here's the global situation. As I said, nearly 800 million cases. You can see repeated waves of transmission, and globally the deaths there nearly equaling 7 million. But fortunately, you can see it does appear there's a downward trend in terms of the magnitude of those, uh, those peaks with respect to the deaths at least. In Australia, you can see we had a pretty good run early on for a large number of reasons. And then coinciding with the emergence of Omicron, we actually removed most of our restrictions and rules that had kept us in that level of uh, very tight control. And we've had a number of peaks since. And I'll talk a little bit about those and why we had those. And here's our cases in more, more detail in the Omicron era. You can see we've had five um, Omicron waves. One of those is a bit biphasic, but we're calling it five. And they're from successive um, subvariants of Omicron. So BA1, 2, 4, 5, 2.75, and then XBB have largely accounted for those successive waves. So how do we compare globally? This is a bit of a heat map here, and you can see cases at the moment is very light, but you can see the whole world is pretty light there, and I think a large part of that is that people aren't really testing so much anymore, and in fact, some parts of the world are certainly on an upward trajectory at the moment. Cumulatively, we've seemed to have quite a lot of cases, but I think our excellent testing uh, accounts for that to a a large degree. Uh, And then if we look at deaths, you can see a, a similar Um, pattern in terms of those peaks, particularly post-Omicron, but we did have some little peaks even before that emerged. And if we compare cases to deaths, you can see each increase in transmission did uh, amount in an increase in in deaths as well. Um, But fortunately, both of those appear to be in that downward trajectory. The the death rate is obviously just a bit less clean because the numbers are lower and there were some issues with reporting, including some significant lags. 
And I think this is the, one of the most important things, though, is cumulatively, if we look at deaths, we've actually fared very well. And there's a large number of reasons why that might be the case. I think most of it is that we didn't have widespread community transmission until the majority of our population was vaccinated, as well as having excellent access to a great healthcare system, uh, testing, um, excellent supportive care, and early access to antivirals. So all those things contributed, I think, to us uh, actually doing fairly well. And if we just quickly go through some important events over the last few years, in some ways it feels like we've only just been doing this for a little while, in some ways it feels like it's been my whole life. But if we look back, I think it is important to reflect. You can see first case, 25th of January, not far from here. So 1,316 days ago, not that anyone's counting. We saw in that first year lots of restrictions, uh, border controls, that COVID safe app, which was fantastic, of course, uh, came in. Um, and then we saw those sort of things fluctuate over the course of that year. And really one of the biggest achievements, I think, of uh, medical science ever was we had those vaccines in such a short space of time. So really only a, a year after this became a big problem, we started being able to vaccinate people. Um, we still did see fluctuating restrictions and lockdowns, but then we saw at the end of that year when we achieved those vaccination targets, a, a plan that had been in place for some months was to reopen. And that's what really started um, at the end of that year, coinciding, of course, with Omicron emerging and those huge peaks that we saw. So January 2022 was pretty tough. You can see that we had um, an extra 1,000 deaths basically in a period of two weeks from uh, late January um, to, uh, to early February. Um, and then we got oral antivirals. We opened right up. We had three more waves. And then 2023, I think what we've seen is, again, not so much waves. I like to describe them more as ripples because we're going to see repeated uh, increases in cases. But uh, we've got improving tools all the time. So just quickly going through what's happened with the virus. Here's a picture of the variants, and we had lots of different names here. We started with where they were from, but people got cranky when a, a new variant was named after where it was discovered, went to the Greek alphabet, and then decided we'd get stuck on Omicron. So then we've had successive sub-variants of Omicron, and here's a, a quick um, picture of some of those. And then Omicron became a bit more complicated, so not expecting you to, to write all of this down. There'll be no test on this at the end. But just to show how complicated it really is with over 600 subvariants of Omicron. And this has continued to get more complex. These arise through mutations, so spontaneous change, but also recombination, a bit like we can see that the flu do. Um, and, and as I mentioned earlier, we've had waves of transmission in our country driven by those different subvariants, but it's continued to get more complicated. And the two we're talking about a lot at the moment, EG5, which has been nicknamed Eris. These nicknames are dumb and I don't like them. Apparently that's the Greek god of strife and discord, whatever that really means. It's been around for a little while, but it's thought to be accounting for the increase in cases, particularly in certain countries like the US, where that's now the dominant variant. And then in the last week or two, BA 2.86. This has been nicknamed Parola. It's actually unclear a little bit about why they did that. Um, it's, I think it's an asteroid that lives near a planet, something to do with that. And the concerning thing about this one is the number of changes in the spike protein we haven't seen since Omicron emerged. So there's more than 30, probably 34 new changes to that spike protein. So this is the most different subvariant we've seen since BA1, so the first Omicron. This is being monitored very closely. It's very early days. So when I first prepared this slide, so 10 days ago, there were six of these in four countries. Now there's over 30 in about 10 countries. So um, it's thought to be the most immune evasive subvariant we've seen, um, but thought to be less infectious. But it's really too early to know. So it's a matter of watching this space. 
implications of these changes are, are things that we're already living, I guess. So we know the virus changing leads to immune evasion, which means protection from both vaccines and past infection is reduced. Um, and these changes can also impact other things like testing and antivirals, although so far has done so to a, to a lesser degree. And I think the main thing is the virus has changed, is going to keep changing, so we need a response that, that does that as well. And I'll mention the new vaccines that are coming shortly. A lot of people see a change in any of our rules as, as an admission of guilt that our previous rules were wrong, and it's not the case. It's just that we need to be able to respond to what this virus is going to do in terms of a rapid rate of change moving forward. Um, and a lot of people have suggested that it's going to get milder each time, but these changes are truly random. So um, we expect immune evasion to be a feature of most of these, but there could be one that's a bit more severe. So we can't assume it's just going to mutate away to being nothing we need to worry about. Quickly moving through vaccination. You know, I think our country did a great job of securing lots of different vaccines. Of course, the one we were working on at the University of Queensland um, was abandoned, but that left four different vaccines with three different platforms with very large numbers. And just showing that in a bit more detail, so including our updated vaccines, which I'll mention in a moment, nine different vaccines approved. But Australia's also playing a really big part in the clinical trials for all these vaccines with about 30 in clinical trials at the moment. And if we look at our vaccination rates, we did a pretty good job once they were available of really getting those rates up pretty high. You can see we've administered nearly 70 million doses. Um, and uh, I'll talk a bit about the 2023 booster in a moment. So we did um, have a new recommendation this year, the so-called 2023 booster, and it really focused on time, six months since your last vaccine or COVID infection, and they created these three new categories, recommended, consider, or not recommended, and it was really our first step towards solidifying a risk-based approach and focusing on those at greatest risk. And so this was something that I think most people were sort of comfortable with, but it wasn't clear whether that meant every six months or just once this year. So the 1st of September, they updated that advice and again, focusing a bit more on the highest risk. Um, so another dose is recommended for those over 75 years if you haven't had a dose in the last six months. And they've really taken away that focus on that uh, infection in that last six months and move that down a bit to highlight in that bit there where it says most benefit if no history of infection, but that doesn't really count in terms of their eligibility quite as much. They've moved um, uh, consider to include 65 to 74 or younger with severe immunocompromise. So that's the, the advice that came out just yesterday. Um, and if we look at uh, doses administered per week, and you can see here in blue is GP clinics, so I uh, just want to commend you all on a fantastic job, because obviously GPs have done a great job of, you know, our response overall, but particularly with respect to vaccination. And if we match that up with recommendations in cases, you can see the biggest increase was in preparation for opening up, and there was a lot of rules around that. People wanted to try to get back to normal. With the first Omicron wave, we saw a big response in terms of boosters, but then we've had another number of successive recommendations for boosters that haven't been matched with an increase in vaccination uptake. And if you look at the time now of those big peaks, that the last big one was about a year and a half ago, and if we, we know that these uh, vaccines, the protection they provide, wanes over time, that means there's a lot of people who are becoming susceptible again. Um, here we look at that 2023 booster. Um, green is over 65, so... You know, earlier on we did okay in around April, but it's really fallen away. So we've had nearly 4 million people take up that dose, 66%, so only two-thirds of eligible aged care residents. And we know that aged care is a huge problem with this virus. It's a, an environment that's highly conducive to transmission and it houses those at greatest risk. 
And so we know age is also the biggest risk factor. People 65 years and over, only around half have had a booster in the last six months. So we have our work cut out for us there. And so why has that booster uptake plateaued? And I think it's important to think about these reasons so we can try and address it and work out strategies to improve things. And I've listed some things here. There's a large number of others. Survivorship bias. A lot of people say, I've had COVID. Why would I need a vaccine? Now I was fine. A lot of misunderstanding that you don't need a vaccine after you've had the infection. People think that uh, natural immunity will protect them for a long period of time. A lot of people have looked at those high case numbers, particularly early with Omicron, and say, well, the vaccines don't work. Um, the perception of risk is what really drives people to do things, if we think about it from a public health perspective. So people don't think there's much of a risk now for those reasons and others. And I think because we had to wind back some of those rules um, about borders and restrictions, quarantine, etc., a lot of those changes were supported by very reassuring messages. So I think most people have kind of lost sight of the impact of this virus. And then there's fatigue, frustration and lots of other reasons. So I think we need to do more to try and address some of those things so we can keep that rate of uh, booster uptake pretty significant. I like to show this slide just because a lot of people say, well, look at all the cases and deaths we've had. These vaccines have been useless. They've done nothing. And there's lots of great work that's done some really, that used some fairly sophisticated modelling to show that these vaccines have prevented tens of millions of deaths and hundreds of millions of cases. And most of these figures are in the first year or part of that year alone. So uh, these and many others have demonstrated that the impact of these vaccines has been just enormous. But we do have some ongoing challenges. So uh, the virus is going to continue to change. We have to be prepared to educate people about that, to discuss that, and to have a response that can change accordingly. All those things I mentioned in terms of why the booster rate is plateaued, fatigue, frustration, perception of risk, etc. We need to work to address that. And there are a lot of limitations of our current strategy, so we do need to improve that. And we've taken the first step there with the updated vaccines, which I'll talk about now. So on the left, we have our original virus and our original vaccine response in blue. It all matched nicely, great protection. But the virus changed, that red colour, you can see our blue antibodies don't do as much. So what did we do? We combined the original one, so you still got a bit of a boost of the original blue ones, but then you made some new ones to the, to the red virus, and that worked pretty well for a period of time. However, we're probably past that now, and in fact, we've moved back to a monovalent vaccine targeting XBB. A lot of talk about why the new recommendations didn't include something about that, and it, the, the commentary, I think, was that these are under review at the moment and not yet approved, and so the timing's unclear, so that's why that's not included in that updated recommendation. In terms of time frame, we, of course, don't know, but it's likely to be pretty soon, in fact. And then there's a whole host of other, um, other features of a vaccine that we would like that are not yet really done well by the current vaccines, not at all to diminish the impact they've had, as I've mentioned. And perhaps the main one is underlined there in the middle, transmission blocking. It'd be great to have a vaccine that more significantly reduced people's uh, ability to get infected. And if we look at the, the number of vaccines that are still in trials, this tracker stopped being uh, updated uh, a little while ago, but you can see there's hundreds of vaccines still in clinical trials. And if we look at the kind of properties we're trying to achieve, combination vaccines, and that'll be the first next step. Um, mucosal, so vaccines that are administered by the same route the virus gets in. Broader and stronger immunity, for example, are other properties we're trying to achieve. And there's lots of candidates in, in all of these different areas.
combination vaccines are actually getting pretty close. A lot of these were trialled in Australia. We did trials of a few of these. And some of these newer platforms particularly lend themselves to being able to make a combined vaccine. When we say combined, of course, we're talking about flu and COVID and maybe even flu, COVID and RSV. And we had a great talk earlier about the burden of RSV. A vaccine that protected against all three of those, I think, would be game-changing. The biggest challenge is at the bottom there is that COVID's not seasonal. And in fact, even the flu and RSV season don't necessarily overlap perfectly. So the optimum timing of a vaccine like this will be a challenge. But I think on pragmatic grounds, getting more people protected by just doing it at a certain point in time annually will be something that we might look at. A nasal vaccine, this has been something that's been tried for lots of other things before. Biggest challenge is getting a strong enough response, but we now have some um, techniques to achieve that. One of them is a vaccine I've been involved in, which is similar to AstraZeneca, which didn't reproduce after you gave it. Obviously, had some challenges, so we don't use that now. But this one is a replication. Um, it's able to replicate once, which means you get about 100 times more of the spike protein, and that should overcome the limitations in getting a strong enough response. So we'll wait and see how that goes. And we're also getting some vaccines that can be applied by a, by a micro patch with lots of div, uh, little projections. This has been some work that a um, University of Queensland and then a private company have done a great job of, and so there's now a COVID vaccine that may be applied with a little patch on the skin in the not too distant future. This is perhaps the biggest advance in, in vaccines, which is basically the next, next step from mRNA. Um, it's self-amplifying mRNA, and so this includes a replicate, so it makes a few copies of itself, so you get more of the, the thing produced that you want. There's a lot of misinformation still going around about mRNA vaccines and how it incorporates into genomes, etc. So to try and tell people we do have one that's able to uh, amplify once it's given, I think will be a pretty tough sell and will take a lot of education, but it's a very exciting uh, next generation vaccines that we'll see how that goes. And vaccines that give broader protection by targeting other bits of the virus as well are also underway. So antivirals, again, there's a lot happening in this space, and we've actually done a really good job in our country of having access to a lot of antivirals. A lot of other countries didn't get um, as many of these approved, and the, the numbers of, uh, of doses available that we've had, initially a very narrow eligibility that's expanded successively like our, our vaccines have, and it's pretty hard to follow. So you can see here a lot of expansions in the eligibility. And of course, I'd encourage people to look at the PBS and, and what it is currently, because this may change uh, any day. Um, current eligibility, so 70 years and older, doesn't matter about the risk factors, comorbidities. 50 years and older, um, any risk factor, so one is enough. The biggest change that happened in early April was it used to be two and it went to one. That was that extra 160-odd thousand people in that 60 to 69-year bracket that became eligible. 30 years and older if they're a First Nations person with one risk factor. And if you're 18 years and older and moderately to severely immunocompromised, or if you've been to hospital from COVID before, you can get access to those antivirals. And those risk factors for eligibility are all the things that you might expect that increases people's risk of having more severe disease, and they're all listed there and can be readily found on the, the PBS documents. And that list of who's severely immunocompromised is a, a list that's been replicated through all the ATAGI documents that first appeared with the discussion about who should get three doses um, for the primary vaccination series. So that's where you can find the list of who's severely immunocompromised, because it is a bit of a challenge, particularly with some of the, the new biologics. This is a US um, table from the uh, FDA, CDC, 
we obviously have similar uh, guidance here, and again, I'd encourage people to look at that locally. But just to compare, the indications are pretty similar. There are some different considerations between the two. Paxlovid has the drug-drug uh, interactions that may limit utilisation. There are lots of good apps to help sort that out. Um, Legevrio at the bottom there doesn't have those same challenges necessarily. Some important points about treatment, uh, just to go through these very quickly. Um, so the eligibility, as I've mentioned, also includes a positive test. And we heard a little bit about testing earlier. I think a lot of people have lost sight of the benefit of testing. We're seeing a lot less testing done. This can be a rapid antigen test or a PCR. Um, I've had a lot of people recount to me that people have been told there's no point testing anymore, we don't worry about it. But of course, access to therapy is the, the main reason we still want people to get tested. Um, there's obviously more complexity getting a test these days than there, there was at the very beginning. And so what I'm actually encouraging people to do is if you've got a high risk patient in particular, is talk to them ahead of time, particularly if we see case numbers rise, about how they can get access to a request for a test, how they can get those tests quickly, and how they can get their prescription for their antivirals quickly. Because like most antivirals, and this spans things like the flu, for example, um, time to initiation is perhaps the biggest determinant of how effective they are. So we want people to be able to get these quickly. A lot of discussion about uh, how well these work, and particularly with one of these antivirals, there was an overseas study that I think was fairly poorly um, designed and, and then fairly poorly interpreted, suggested that one of these antivirals didn't do anything, um, whereas in fact some really high quality local data has certainly suggested that there's you know, good levels of efficacy with both of these antivirals, so they, they both have a place. One of the biggest challenges, we had this great group, the National COVID Evidence Task Force, that were putting together guidelines and updating them. Unfortunately, the funding for that has been withdrawn, and so I suspect there'll be no more updates. And as it stands, based on that study that I don't necessarily like, their guidance still says not to use one of those antivirals, when I think they both have a role. So um, we'll certainly keep trying to, to get those to people who are eligible as quickly as possible. A lot of people say, why don't we give them to everyone? And one of the issues is in people that aren't necessarily high risk, they probably don't do very much. So we don't want to be trying to get them to a lot of people who probably won't get benefit. But if you are at risk and those same risk factors, age, etc., we really want those people to be treated and treated quickly. Um, we do have intravenous treatment for hospitalised patients. And so again, getting people tested, getting them to hospital and getting them on those can make a, a big difference. Um, adjunctive therapy in steroids in particular, dexamethasone, continues to make a really big difference. Um, we had some antibody therapies, so for around 2% of the population, due to uh, immune compromise, it's inherent, or due to treatment of malignancy or an autoimmune condition, um, about 2% of the population can't respond. So we had these great antibodies we could give as pre-exposure prophylaxis. They were rendered ineffective due to changes in the virus, and um, there's a new version of that that, uh, that is currently in clinical trials. A number of sites in Australia are doing that, my, my site as well. So hopefully there'll be some more of those soon to protect those who are most vulnerable. And there are more antivirals to come, including uh, an oral version of the intravenous antiviral we're using. There'll probably be combinations that'll come in the not-too-distant future. So that is a, another area to watch closely that's going to continue to expand and improve our capacity to, to manage COVID. So I know I've covered a, a lot in a very short space of time, so just to wrap up some key concepts. What's COVID going to do moving forward? The only thing we know for sure is we can't predict with any certainty, but repeated waves are inevitable. Um, they're likely to be of lower magnitude and hopefully lower consequence, um, but we can't ensure that's the case. 
We don't know which subvariant or what other factors might contribute to those, but it's inevitable nonetheless. The sort of factors that will drive those is those new subvariants, immune evasion, for example, how transmissible they are, as well as waning immunity from, uh, from vaccines as well as natural immunity. So that's where getting that booster rate is up is going to be really important. But we don't have zero transmission between waves. While the commentary might subside to close to zero, certainly our transmission doesn't. You know, we're at our lowest point right now since widespread transmission began of hospitalisations, ICU, etc. But I have about half a dozen COVID patients under my care in our hospital at the moment. So we don't go to zero. And that means there's obviously transmission happening. But because we're not testing and talking about it, people think that it's gone away. And as we do withdraw all of our other measures, we're seeing fewer people wear masks, fewer people stay home, isolation periods are reducing, our reliance on what's left goes up, and that's again highlighting the importance of vaccination. I've mentioned the real-world evidence supports the use of both antivirals, so we're fortunate to have those tools. So I guess the main thing to take away is COVID's not going to go away, even if the discussion around it does but we have amazing tools, the tools are going to keep improving, and if we use those to their fullest capacity, we should be able to expect a, a reasonable level of control. But it's that utilisation that's probably the biggest thing we need to try and address at the moment. And I think that's my time. Thank you. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.